episode 116, Bulletproof. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to the September 22nd, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Politics was a rough business in the 1930s. With fascism in Europe and the Great Depression in America, the public looked to politicians for answers, and if they didn't get them, things got rough. During the 1936 presidential election, Kansas Governor Alf Landon knew the stakes, so he traveled with his own brand of security, a four-foot-tall lead speaker's lectern. Was the Topeka native the target of an assassination plot? or just paranoid of kryptonite. Then, we speak to Vicki Henley, the executive director of the Kansas Historical Society, Incorporated. This private arm of the Historical Society is gearing up for the 150th celebration of Kansas statehood next year, and Vicki's looking to spread the message. We also introduce a new segment, Kansas Quiz to test your knowledge of Kansas history. This week, we crash a cocktail party in the White House of Kansas, the Landon Mansion. Finally, we play another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White when we connect the small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Pluto, a tiny floating ball of ice in our very own solar system. Did White discover Pluto while he was looking for Uranus? But first... Bulletproof. Just enough to bring you down. And Mary, won't you Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Merle. Today we are going to discuss a rather unusual tall black lectern. And a lectern being uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, something that you talk from on. Mm-hmm. You give a speech from a lectern. Sure, yeah. This Art Deco lectern is black, trimmed with brass, lightning rods, sunflowers, and wheat. But probably the most unusual part is it's made uh, completely of lead, Yeah, which is a little odd. (laughs) The bizarre lectern once belonged to the Kansas governor, Alf Landon. Um, All right, Bob, Landon's a pretty recognizable name in Kansas, but probably not not all that well-known elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Who was Alf Landon? Well, uh, Alf Landon probably is best known... Uh, in this country as the 1936 presidential candidate uh, for the Republican Party. Um, He is pretty well known in Kansas, uh, particularly here in Topeka. There is a a road named after him. There is a middle school. Uh, My children went to middle school. Landon Middle School. Landon Middle School here in Topeka. But he served as governor in Kansas from 1932 to 1937. Well, he's elected in 32, so he actually served from 33 to 37. Now, he was uh, born September 9th, so just not too long ago for for his birthday here. Uh Uh, Born September 9th, 1887 in West Middlesex, Pennsylvania. Uh, where his father was an oil prospector and an oil promoter. Um, okay. And that's kind of where he learned the business and actually went into that later. Uh, the family moved and lived for a time in Marietta, Ohio. But in 1904, when Alf was 17, the um, Landons followed their father kind of in this oil search uh, and came west to Kansas and settled in Independence, Kansas. Mm-hmm. 
uh, again, when, when Landon was about 17 years old. And from there, he went on to attend the University of Kansas. He obviously had an interest in the um, oil production and oil companies from his father, but uh, when he went to the uh, KU, his father insisted that he go to law school. And in 1912, he formed his own independent oil production company. So only he's on like four years out of college. And, and he's already started his own oil company. In the oil biz. Well, that same year, and we're talking about 1912, Landon and his father attended the Bull Moose Party convention. And this is the convention that nominated Teddy Roosevelt ah, Teddy. for president. And those meetings and discussions uh, about political topics at the Bull Moose Party really pretty much informed his political view for the rest of his life. Although he's in the Republican Party, he's sometimes been described as a liberal Republican Today, I think you'd describe a moderate Republican, uh, conservative on fiscal issues, you know, a little bit more liberal on social policy. Um, he'd become active in the Republican Party and, um, you know, worked for the um, to elect Republican candidates in Kansas uh, throughout the teens and 20s. And in 1928, he became head of the state Republican Party fairly well-positioned person right. at that He's point. He's on course to do great yep. things. And so four years later in 1932, um, he ran for governor himself. In addition to you know trying to promote other Republican candidates, he runs for governor in 1932. And interestingly, he campaigned all across the state and he wore his oil field work clothes and had these right. uh, boots and a leather jacket and kind of a battered old brown fedora hat. Well, he defeated the Democratic incumbent, Harry Woodring, who, interestingly, would go on to be Secretary of War mm -hmm. under Roosevelt. But Landon defeated Woodring by less than 6,000 votes. And it's interesting that this is, you know, during the Great Depression. It's 1932. And Landon was the only Republican gubernatorial candidate west of the Mississippi to win, the, to win an election. The National Republican Party obviously takes note of this. You know, he's the only uh, governor, uh, Republican candidate for governor to, to win in 34. So they nominated him for the party's presidential slot in 1936. Um, he lost that election in a landslide to, to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, but he then served out the remainder of his term as governor because he only had a couple of months left, mm -hmm. leaving office in 1937. He returned to his oil business and never again sought public office. Uh, he did, however, kind of become the grand old man of the Republican Party. But he essentially worked in his oil business till he retired, and he lived here on the west side of Topeka and would receive visitors at his home, uh, which, interestingly for us, is just a little over two miles uh, east of the museum site here. If you go yeah. down 6th Avenue, if you're ever in Topeka, you go down 6th Avenue from the uh, museum, you can you can go by uh, the Landon home. Yep, I drove by it on the way to lunch this afternoon. Yeah, it's a, it's a gorgeous um, mansion, mm -hmm. I guess. He he would probably be, you know, a bit chagrined to hear it called a mansion, but it is. It a, is a, a mansion. It's a mansion. It's a very nice home. And it was there on September 6th, 1987, uh, President Ronald Reagan and his wife Nancy paid a visit to Landon just a couple of days before his 100th birthday. So, you know, Reagan and So when you and say wife, he was the grand old man. man yeah, he they got the on a plane, flew into Forbes Field here. I remember I was working here at the museum at the time, and I remember they closed off Westchester Drive on the west side of, of Gage and set up 
uh, bleachers so people could watch Reagan's motorcade going up Westchester to 6th and then taking the turn and going to the Landon mm-hmm. residence. And, you know, Landon was on the porch waiting for him, and, you know, he and Reagan uh, had a nice little chat, and they came to wish him happy birthday because uh, that was on the 6th. He turned 100 on the 9th. Uh, and then just about a month later, October 13th of 87, uh, he passed away. Landon used this particular lectern in his 1936 presidential campaign. Yes, he did. Um, He's rather infamous for the results of that particular election. Bob, can you give us a quick rundown of the presidential election of 1936? Like, who were the contenders? What were the circumstances? Okay. uh, And how did Landon historically blow this election? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, quick run. The contenders in this corner, uh, we have the um, the incumbent Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, he had already served one term as United States president. He was elected in 1932. So in 36, um, you know, we're we're still in the Great Depression. The country's still, you know, starting to come out a little bit, but. Uh, uh, the Republicans hadn't been doing very well, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the 36 campaign during the Depression, uh, Landon's the only governor to get elected that's a Republican. FDR was a popular president. His New Deal programs that he put together to combat the Depression were really welcomed by a lot of people. They put a lot of people back to work. They were beginning to show some success. But, you know, the Republicans obviously are going to run somebody, and, you know, here uh, Landon's won. Uh, a couple of elections. He was elected in 32 and 34. So the Republican national leaders are, I don't want to say desperate, but they're looking for, you know, somebody, not not desperate in that they picked Landon, but desperate that they had to have somebody with a winning record, you know, somebody uh-huh. they can hold up and say, hey, this guy's been doing a great job. Uh, so they started turning up in Topeka to talk to Landon. Landon says, sure, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll um, put my name up for the nomination. But he declined to enter any presidential primaries or to even really get off his front porch to pursue the nomination. So in the two months after his nomination, he made no campaign appearances (laughs) whatsoever, leading one national newspaper columnist to write, quote, considerable mystery surrounds the disappearance of Alfred M. Landon of Topeka, Kansas. The Missing Persons Bureau has sent out an alarm bulletin bearing Mr. Landon's photograph and other particulars, and anyone having information of his whereabouts is asked to communicate directly with the Republican National Committee. <laughs> so he really didn't even campaign yeah, for himself. He didn't really campaign much. And, you know, the Missing Persons Report, while it's a bit of an exaggeration, um, you know, Landon did do some campaigning. I mean, we've got photographs of him campaigning. We know he campaigned. He used this lectern on his campaign. Um but not really vigorously and not, you know, he wasn't out there, you know. Um, he, he wasn't just kind of top of mind, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, well, come Election Day, Landon lost spectacularly <laughs> uh, to Roosevelt. Uh, but you look at the Electoral College, and that's where he gets hammered. Right. Uh, Landon carried only two states. <laughs> Vermont and Maine. Maine, yeah. Vermont and Maine. Uh, didn't even win his home state. Did Kansas didn't even that's vote rough. for him. That's, that's rough. That's, He's the sitting governor. Yeah, that's cold. <laughs> Your own state just says, eh, no, nah, we, we, like we like this guy. Landon got eight electoral votes. Roosevelt got 523. Uh, in fact, it was the one of the most crushing defeats in American political history. Um, Landon kept a sense of humor about this. I mean, I don't think he was ever really crushed by his defeat. You know, we call it the crushing defeat. Oh, he lost in the landslide. Oh, it's, but you know, Landon didn't dislike Roosevelt. He didn't really dislike his policy. So it wasn't like he thought he was losing to you know 
Hitler or mm-hmm. <laughs> Satan or anybody. So I think he, he was okay with that. And he really did keep a whole uh, sense of humor about the whole thing. He once described himself as a lawyer who never had a case, an oil man who never made a million, and a presidential candidate who carried only Maine in Vermont. Why is this lectern made of lead, Bob? <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking at first maybe it had something to do with Superman. You know, maybe he wanted, That's what I thought, too. You know, maybe he wanted to stand pantless behind it and not be able to have Superman see. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it could, could be. But Landon indicated it was like a security measure. Okay. Um, he basically said, uh, I, I have a bulletproof steel uh, lectern that protects me. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is it's not steel, it's lead. Uh, was it actually a security measure? And what the heck was lead going to do? Uh, in a 1984 interview, and again, this is just like three years before his death, and this is where we get the the quote about it being steel, uh, Landon said, quote, my entire security consisted of a bulletproof steel speaker's podium that reached up to my chin. All you could see was my head. I have one bodyguard, a retired federal agent hired by the campaign committee. That podium went everywhere with me on the train. It took four big men to load and unload it. And having had to move this thing before, I can attest to that. It is. Yeah, that sucker is heavy. So I'm betting his security staff, probably pretty glad he didn't do a whole lot of campaigning. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, How did the museum end up with this lectern? Well, it was donated uh, by his daughter, Nancy Landon Kassebaum, who is now Nancy Landon Kassebaum Baker. Uh, she was a United States senator from Kansas in, from 1978 to 1987, after Governor Landon passed away, um, uh, Senator Kassebaum um, donated a number of his uh, uh, artifacts to the Historical Society. We were very happy to get them. The lectern is uh, is pretty pretty ominous looking. Yes, it is. Uh, it's with the lightning bolt on the front. <laughs> yep. uh, it certainly kind of has an evil dictator look. <laughs> I'm not saying that's why Landon lost, but I'm saying it looks like the podium yeah. or the lectern yeah. of an evil dictator. Where does one go to get an evil dictator le- lectern? <laughs> well, yeah, we, well, we really don't know where he obtained this particular one. It's, it's you know, not like you just pop down to, you know, evil dictators or us right. or, you know, eviledictator.com. Um, but it does, I mean, it, it really does look like something Mussolini. It does. Behind, you know, with the lightning bolt. But we do know it was made especially for landing because it has these brass highlights that has Kansas symbols on it. There's wheat and there's sunflowers. There's also a plaque on it with his name. Now, we don't know whether that was, the plaque was put on there when it was manufactured or maybe that was done sometime later, but it it looks very much like it was made for Landon. Um, The lightning bolt on the front, I really don't know, other than, I don't know. It's not really a Kansas symbol. No, unless you're talking about thunderstorms, but you know, why not put a tornado on the front of it? But, uh, so we don't know if it has a specific reference. You know, it does harken back to that kind of Art Deco style. You see kind of those angular, you know, lightning bolts used in Art Deco. Uh, When I look at it, I kind of think of the RKO radio symbol, which, you know, wasn't a thunderbolt, but it's that kind of, you know, modern look, it's radio, it's, you know, technology. So I think I think it's kind of that 30s, you know, hey, we're on the cutting edge here. Sure. But yeah, it... It, um, it does have a, I think it's got a very art deck, kind of an Egyptian yeah. Rosetta mm-hmm. Stone. Yeah. You know, you don't quite understand what the symbols mean. Yeah, it's but got you see somebody very, yes. banging their shoe on or something sure. and just, you know, kind of uh, announcing world domination, right? <laughs> which was not Landon's style. Um, all right, Bob. Well, thanks for telling us about the uh, the lectern, and thanks for telling us about Governor Landon. It was my pleasure. I have often walked 
down this street before. For this week's Kansas quiz, we go to the home of Alf Landon. Following his failed run for the presidency, this wealthy oil man informed his wife Theo that he would build his own White House in Kansas. In 1936, Landon did just that by building a massive Greek Revival white mansion near the Kansas River. Wealthy and politically connected, Landon received guests from all over the world to his South Fork-looking Topeka home. One particular cocktail party in the 1970s involved a visit from West Virginia Senator John Warner and his elegant wife. That's today's Kansas Quiz question. Name the celebrity wife of Senator John Warner who enjoyed a screwdriver at the Topeka Mansion. Out of every door No, it's just on the street where you live I'm here with Vicki Henley, the executive director of the Kansas State Historical Society, Incorporated, a nonprofit organization that su supports the Historical Society's endeavors. Uh, we're going to take a few moments to talk about KSHS Inc. and learn uh, what listeners, listeners can do to become involved in Kansas history. Vicki, what exactly is the difference between Kansas Historical Society and KSHS Inc.? Well, when I try to explain it to people, I say it's very much like a college university foundation that helps support scholarships and those kinds of things. So I, I tell donors and, and members that, that the Kansas Historical Society is very much like a major educational institution in the state of Kansas, and we are the private foundation that does all of those things that a state agency can't do. We do membership, we do the retail sales, and we do fundraising. Mm -hmm. How long has KSHS Inc. been around? It's been around since 1875. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. There's not a lot of things in Kansas that have been around since that's 1875. That's right. That's 135 years. Yeah. And we started out as both a public and private institution. And the legislature kind of split us up into two distinct organizations in 2002. Mm -hmm. KSHS Inc. works to foster a community of people who support Kansas history. And it's done by creating a membership organization. Um, can you talk a little bit about the membership organization and what are the benefits to being a member of KSHS, Inc.? Well, I, the one I like to push the most is that you're supporting a major cultural institution in the state of Kansas. So mm -hmm. please do join. It is our birthday next year, Kansas 150 we're celebrating. So we really want to pump up our membership. Mm -hmm. You get a lot from us, I think. You get four Kansas history magazines. Those are our academic journal. We've been doing that in some form or another since the late 1800s. So it's new research on Kansas history. Then we have what I call the People Magazine. That's Reflections. You have four quarterly issues of that, too. And that's at least three articles talking about our vast collections. People don't understand all the things that we have here. Mm -hmm. we, this is a wonderful institution. We have vast collections in the museum and in the archives, so we highlight those. And then you get free admission to the museum and the 16 state historic sites and 10% uh, off in the store. If I wanted to become a member of KSHS Inc., uh, how would I go about doing that? You would go directly to our website, which is www.kshs.org, scroll down to Join KSHS Inc., hit that, and it's just like a store. So you put in your $40 for individual, $50 for family. KSHS Inc. has an advisory board of directors with 102 members. Board members range from amateur historians to famous television stars. Uh, can you name a few of the more recognizable members? Because uh, there's a couple I know offhand that are, it's kind of funny and surprising that they are members of our KSHS board. 
Well, I can think of the probably the two of the famous that, that you might see on TV are Bill Quarters, who made his name um, telling everybody to take cover at the tornado that hit Topeka mm-hmm. um, so many about 50 years ago. Bill, and he does a lot of like mystery uh, right. specials He's on A&E now. a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then James Reynolds from Oskaloosa has been on um, daytime TV for, I think, almost 35, right. 40 years. That's Abe from Days of Our That's Lives, right. right. He is great. He and is a board member. <laughs> and he is very supportive of us. Mm-hmm. He really he comes back. He tries to support us in any way we can. Of course, um, people who are passed on our board include William Allen White of Emporia, and we have a historic site, his home. Mm-hmm. And then we have Gordon Parks, who is from Fort Scott, a very famous um Photographer, photographer and poet, absolutely. I think. Um, uh, one of the women, on she's not very famous, but she wrote one of my favorite books, which is on sale in our store. It's called uh, Pioneer Women. Uh, Joanna Stratton is on our board. And then, of course, we have the support of former Senators Bob Dole and uh, Nancy Cassabaum. So we're thrilled to have their support. Well, thanks for coming in and telling us a little bit about KSHS Inc. It was my pleasure, Merle. The I'm Bob Keckeisen, and the answer to today's Kansas quiz is Elizabeth Taylor. That's right, the daughter of former Kansans, Elizabeth Taylor gained theatrical acclaim for her performances in Cleopatra and Giant. In 1976, she married future Senator John Warner. Now, as the story goes, Elizabeth and John attended a cocktail party with the Landons following a speaking engagement at the University of Kansas. As hostess, Theo Landon asked Elizabeth and John for their drink orders. Elizabeth stated that she would like a screwdriver, and Theo promptly headed for the tool shed. On the street where you live. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me this week is Museum Assistant Director Rebecca Martin. Hi. And Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. This week we are connecting William Allen White, the Pulitzer Prize winning Kansas author, to the planet or planet, Pluto, one of the most distant orbiting bodies in the solar system. Rebecca, would you like to provide us some background on Pluto? Absolutely, Merle. And that is a hard word to say, isn't it? (laughs) Merle or Pluto? (laughs) In combination. Uh, The search for Planet X began in 1894 with the construction of the Lowell Observatory in the Arizona Territory Desert by wealthy Bostonian Percival Lowell. Arizona wasn't even a state then. By 1929, the search was assigned to Clyde Tombaugh, who was a 23-year-old Kansas boy recently hired at the observatory. Tombaugh grew up in Burdette, Kansas, where he often constructed his own telescopes. On February 18, 1930, Tombaugh achieved infamy, by, in a good way, by finding the mysterious planet X, which was renamed Pluto at the suggestion of an 11-year-old British girl. The name was adopted in honor of Percival Lowell, whose initials were PL, and that's mm. why it's so hard to say. <laughs> Pluto. Pluto, Thanks, Percival. Yeah. Or British girl. Yeah, or British girl. <laughs> Pluto has three moons and follows a highly unusual solar orbit. In 2006, Pluto's status was 
downgraded wah, wah, <laughs> to dwarf planet or planet by the International Astro Astronomical Union due to its small mass. And we have to admit the IAU is not very popular in Kansas circles. Mm. It is that. not. No. It's, there's some other states where it's not popular either. Yeah. Apparently state law in New Mexico and Illinois prohibits recognition of Pluto's new status. And I think it should be that way in Kansas too. <laughs> Don't we go by that thing size doesn't matter. Yeah. Kind of I, a lesson think, in life. I think that's a wise statement. Yeah. Bring back Pluto. Yeah. And uh, in addition, as uh, some of our listeners probably know, that move led to the creation of the term Plutoed, which means to unjustly degrade something. Hmm. Plutoed. I've been Plutoed in my day. <laughs> yeah. So we can use that now, like, don't Pluto me. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Like it. Popular culture. Yeah. So yeah, Clyde Tombaugh. Uh, what I thought was interesting about Clyde Tombaugh is he was from Kansas Burdett. He started working at Lowell Observatory before he even went to college. Wow. Mm -hmm. Because he was making his own telescopes. He right. Was so and good. He was so good at it. And he sent, like, apparently he was quite an artist and could draw a lot of what he saw. And he saw he sent samples to the Lowell Observatory. And they said, this guy's pretty impressive. Let's bring him on board. And it was after he discovered Pluto that he went to KU and got his degree yeah. in, astro in astronomy. Good well, boy, though, yeah. coming back to Kansas. Yeah, going to KU. That's pretty impressive. Those were the days of the Wild West, you know. Arizona uh, wasn't even a state. <laughs> I know, and that's what blows my mind. Is this like it's so it's so interesting? This like rich Bostonian guy he comes from mm -hmm. a super wealthy family. I mean, he's kind of an amateur uh, astrologist himself. But, um, or astronomer, whatever the word is. <laughs> he could have been an astrologist. Yeah. Well, you know, he just blows tons of money to find new things. And he has a an observatory in the 1890s, an observatory built in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, the, the, and the, from what I was reading, that was like one of the first observatories that had ever been done with. The rest of them all had all been built, you know, near urban areas. But he knew... He needed a place where the sky was completely open and there was nothing inhibiting vision. And he knew what he saw in Clyde Tombaugh, a Kansas boy. Exactly. Right. Kansas. Exactly. Yay, Kansas. <laughs> All right, Nikayla, uh, I believe you have a solution. You have a way to connect Pluto to uh, William Allen White. <laughs> yes, and there are several ways to do this. but Which is surprising. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't think. I mean, a planet and William Allen White, yeah, and it's not because William Allen White was launched into space, like we talked last time. So, okay, Percival Lowell had a brother named Abbott Lawrence Lowell, who served as the president of Harvard University from 1909 to 1933. In March of 1919, Abbott Lowell publicly debated Henry Cabot Lodge on the subject of senatorial approval for the League of Nations following World War I. Host of the debate was Massachusetts Governor Calvin Coolidge. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and as we know, <laughs> Coolidge and William White were BFF, but not as BFF as he was with Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. On several occasions, Coolidge visited White at his Emporia home. Cool. So there you go. Well, that's pretty good. I, and it, I, I will say, when I was I was trying to find some six degrees as well, uh, when you start looking through the Lowell family, which is like wealthy Boston family, there's like tons of connections because they were connected yeah. to everybody. Well, they had a role to play in in Kennedy's election. It's fascinating. The easy solution, though, is through KU because Clyde Tombaugh went to KU, William Allen White went to KU, sure. and the journalism school at KU is William Allen White. School of Journalism. Well, sure. Could so. you also? You want to go the obvious way. <laughs> well, yeah. Why would we do that? <laughs> Could you also have connected him through Harvard? Did Lindsay go to Harvard, or was the son go to Harvard? William Allen. He, he did, and um, William Allen got connection. an honorary degree from Harvard. Oh, wow! It's the same as going. I guess we proved our point. William Allen White yeah. knew everybody. <laughs> All right, Rebecca, would you like to uh, introduce the next challenge? Sure. In the next episode, we'll connect William Allen White to one of the last remaining holdouts of real communism, old school, Cuba. 
The tiny island was brutally colonized by Spaniards following the arrival of Columbus in 1492, and by 1961 was potentially ground zero for a World War III. Would you believe at one time it was an American tourist hotspot? Mm. Okay, I have to say, if somebody does not send in a solution to this five minutes after the podcast goes online, I'm going to be so disappointed. Really? Because this is so simple. It it's is. Cuba, for crying out loud. <laughs> Just think about it. Hmm. <laughs> Would it be a rough writing it solution? It could be rough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, from Cuba to Emporia. Can it be done? Yes. <laughs> Apparently it can be done, and fairly easily, too. So uh, I guess we'll find out um, next time you guys listen to Six Degrees of William Allen White. Thanks, ladies. That concludes episode 116, Bulletproof. To see a photo of Landon's lead lectern, Go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. You got something to say about the podcast? Well, go ahead. Vent. Leave a customer review on our iTunes page, or go to the podcast section of our website and fill out a podcast survey. Whether you're a Kansan or not, we want to know what you think. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and I examine the work of political cartoonist and Kansas native Albert Reed. In the early 20th century, Reed lampooned the wealthy and well-connected. Were political cartoons of the early 20th century as completely unfunny as those of the late 20th century? You'll find out in two weeks. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And why-